BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today we're talking about forgetting. I have the distinguished neuroscientist and translational researcher, Dr. Scott Small from Columbia University. He is not only a brilliant doctor and researcher, he also wrote a stunning totally accessible book called Forgetting, Taking Neuroscience and Translating It to Those of Us Who Are Interested in How Our Brains Work. And it's also just beautiful literature. So in this episode, Dr. Small goes over the fascinating and useful aspects of brain science and why forgetfulness is not only normal, but also beneficial He talks about pathological forgetting versus normal versus adaptive forgetting. He talks about how memories are made. He talks about sleep and the benefits of sleep and smart sleeping and just thinking and really growing your brain to have the kinds of memories that help you and the kind of forgetting that helps you even more. So not only that, But he's also talking about how we can think through forgetting and memory and brain science to reduce anxiety, to be more creative thinkers, to learn more about trauma memories, PTSD, and talking about our feelings so that we can be more resilient. This man is such a gift to have on the podcast, such a different area of expertise than we've had on in a long time. And I am so honored to have him. You can get his book, Forgetting, on Amazon. I'll have it in the show notes. And I'm so excited to get your feedback. Remember, you can DM me on at Raising Good Humans podcast on my Instagram account. And of course, if you have time, I would love for you to subscribe, give a five-star rating, and even write a little review. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this fascinating episode with Dr. Scott Small. There are many metaphors for memory, and actually I start the book by almost spoofing the bad metaphors. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are many good ones, some are less good. But in fact, we're blessed with more than a metaphor with an analogy, and that's our computer, our personal computers. Uh, Because in fact, computer engineers and brain engineers had to solve the same problems in how to save, store, and retrieve complex information, which is memory. 
And so one could actually simplify the blueprint of the brain, just like someone can simplify the blueprint of a personal computer to explain how that happens and where that happens. So the ability to save information, right? So the analogy here is if you're typing information on your computer screen, right, and you want to store that and save it in your hard drive, what you typically do is hit the click save function on your computer uh, app. And that is effectively what one key area of the brain does, and that's called the hippocampus. A lot of people have heard about the hippocampus. It does a lot more than what I'm simplifying, but this simplification is actually the simplification map I use as I teach trainees, medical students, uh, healthcare providers, because it's actually a very good map in understanding the basics. So without a hippocampus, you simply can't move new information to your hard drive. Then to continue the analogy, if you come back tomorrow, let's say, and you want to open up that document in this analogy and modify it or remind yourself of it, you need to hit the click open function on your computer app. And that is effectively served by a different part of the brain that's right behind our foreheads called the prefrontal cortex. So that's basically the two applications we have. And then the question is, where is memory stored? Where's the hard drive? It's all over the brain, but the memories that we care most about, faces and names, information, are generally stored in the back of the brain right below our skull caps. And that's basically the three components uh, of the anatomy of memory. And it's very similar to the three components of the engineering of computers and how they store, save, and retrieve information. Was that too long-winded? Not at all. That was great. And also, I recognize, I think we can all recognize that there are lengthier and more complex explanations for all of these mechanisms at play, but that's not useful in this context. And so there's some leeway, which I know is uncomfortable for scientists to oversimplify. No, I'll tell you, actually, that's not uncomfortable for me at all. What's really uncomfortable is that when we professors profess too much. You wrote this book on forgetting called Forgetting, right? Yes. (laughs) Um, And what strikes me as so fascinating, and I just want to go over this really briefly, not because it's not important, but because I want to get to so many other things. But as an Alzheimer's researcher... Is that the right word? Yes. A neuroscientist? Yeah, doctor and nurse, a neurologist and neuroscientist. Because you, yeah. you do both, right? Your practice and research. Yeah. Yeah. You're looking at a different time span than we're thinking about in like the throes of parenthood, potentially. But it brought you to all the way back to the origin of being. And um, I'm really interested in how you came to think about forgetting in this different way and if you can just a little bit go into memory in terms of the kind of forgetting that is maladaptive versus adaptive, or I think you have a different way of saying it. So forgive yeah, me. no, you're absolutely right. And that's actually important for me to make that distinction because you're right. My life's effort, my, my patients complain of pathological forgetting. So that's forgetting that's maladaptive, that's not normal. Mm-hmm. And this book is, God forbid, not trying to say that there's any silver lining to that. Pathological forgetting, you know, there are many definitions in medicine, but very simply, as a rule of thumb, it's any memory that worsens against your baseline. 
So you have a baseline memory. If that's worsening, that's pathological forgetting. That's in contrast to what the book is about mainly, uh, and that's normal forgetting. So normal forgetting is what we're born with, which occurs naturally. We have most of our lives, yet we complain about the normal forgetting. And so what the book really does is goes into some of the new neuroscience of normal forgetting and then tries to show that we actually need that normal forgetting with memory to balance each other, to live uh, happy, better and smarter lives. And so today we're focusing on the normal forgetting. And yes. would you say normal forgetting is adaptive forgetting or a so one of the interesting, the, the reason I, I wrote the book is, first of all, because it was a surprise to all of us, if it's a surprise to your listeners and to anyone who leads the, reads the book. After all, I've spent all my career, not just as a doctor, but in psychology and basic neuroscience, where the assumption was that memory is good, forgetting is bad, even normal forgetting. And we should fight forgetting of all kinds, tooth and nail. And the basic assumption was that forgetting is basically a failure of our memory systems. And what inspired me to write the book is, because I am a basic scientist at a certain level, is the really basic neuroscience that only in the last 10 years has clarified the mechanisms that regulate normal forgetting. And what's interesting is that they're different in our neurons, in our brains, we have two kinds of mechanisms, one for memory, one for forgetting. And so that lays lie to the claim that forgetting is simply the rusting of memory. That is just so cool. Yeah, it is. Back to your question on adaptivity. So then the assumption is, well, if nature endowed us with something, nature endowed all our neurons in our brain, memory brain areas with the ability to forget, and they're different than our ability to remember, then the assumption is that that must be beneficial, the adaptation, the evolutionary argument. That could sometimes be a false conclusion. After all, nature has endowed us with an appendix, right? And we don't really need it. And so there's this idea that maybe as evolution catches up to our information-rich new environments, we'll get rid of the forgetting mechanisms that we seem to all complain about. And so what the first chapter deals with that new science introduces that question. And then basically the subsequent chapters reviews insights from neurology, psychology, even philosophy on how, in fact, it is beneficial to have forgetting in balance with memory. So it does serve a purpose, an adaptive purpose. So when I think about forgetting with babies, for example, I would love to go through almost the lifespan in that sense. And that like is pruning considered forgetting is what, you know, like getting rid of certain information. Is it a different mechanism? And then I want to go all the way in, in your journey of explaining the normal forgetting and get to what I think is uh, called mom brain. So first of all, the issue of infantile amnesia, that's the fancy term, is still a fascinating one, right? Most of us, some claim we have memories from before we're two, but that's probably not the case. We just remember being shown pictures. Mm -hmm. So infantile amnesia, what, what's up with that? And there was just a paper on that. So it's a still active area. So I don't think there's any clear answers. It turns out the hippocampus, if we, if we the benefit of thinking of the different anatomy of memory, you can think, well, but what part is maybe not developed in a one or two-year-old? The hippocampus is pretty well there, apparently. It's really the memory stores 
the memory banks themselves that still need to develop. So uh, a baby could remember things on the fly, but has apparently a hard time of you know, laying down permanent long-term memories. Now, when it comes to different phases of one's life, particularly interesting for maternity, or I guess paternity, but particularly for maternity, is there's a lot of research into how memory and forgetting are influenced by the different stages of pregnancy, by the postnatal period. Uh, and it's complicated. And I know I've spoken to a lot of mothers who complain about it. One thing that I found most interesting that is relevant to a chapter of the book is that oxytocin, which is very much a hormone that was described in pregnant women uh, 100 years ago, and is in fact important for relaxing the uterus during, during delivery, for breastfeeding, has turned out to be a really important hormone for all of us. But it was first described in, in mothers and how it also seems to allow a mother to connect with her baby, in fact, to love their baby. And so I'm a hardcore neuroscientist. In this book, I use love way too many times. I, I love how much you use it, but I'm a psychologist. <laughs> right, right. But I, I do it when it's appropriate and it was appropriate. And so oxytocin turns out to be a great, great, or the mechanisms of oxytocin turns out to be a great example of how our brain could turn down our fear memories. So increase fear forgetting for social interactions, for connecting, yes, first and foremost, establishing the connection between a young mother and her newly born, but it turns out to be true for any of our social interactions. Anytime we socially interact, uh, whether it's physically or socially, our brains are releasing oxytocin. And what that oxytocin does, we now know, and the new science of forgetting, this was only established in the last 10 years, is that it turns down the volume, so to speak, of the part of the brain that stores our fear memories. And if you think about it, to really establish a connection with someone, because anyone knew there, there, there are some vulnerabilities and fears there. I think of any, any kid starting school this year. If someone really engages only in their fear, they might not be able to engage socially. So you need to turn that down, which is effectively a forgetting mechanism to open your heart to create new social interactions. So just to stretch that out a little bit, that's why in moments when a child is dysregulated, you don't want to enlist their fear memory. You don't want to go to that part of them to, to sort of yell them out of it. You'd want to oxytocin hit them out of it, right? Well, I, that, that's an interesting question on, you know, parenting and it's beyond <laughs> my scope, even my scope, uh, my ambitious scope in this particular book. Talk about adaptation and evolution. We're hardwired to be fearful. Fear, yeah. right. And, and we should be. And so that's our state of constant fear. And that serves us well because the world is not necessarily a friendly place. Maybe it's no longer dangerous physically, but junior, any junior high schooler will tell you that it's a fearful place, essentially. Yeah. And so if you were to just engage your fear and not turn down your fear memories, you probably would be super safe, but you would be super miserable and lonely. So and you how can you learn, right? Like, I've, I'm curious, if you don't turn the fear volume down, can you walk into a school building and learn anything? Right. 
Uh, you mean learn in general, not just social interactions, not just social interactions, but your math class. Like if you're yeah, sitting no, that's, here, that's probably, that's probably true. If someone is really looping in, in, in a sort of fear mode, they're probably not paying attention and they're not focusing. And if you think about it, if a student teacher relationship is a social relationship, you have to trust the teacher. You have right. to know they're not trying to do harmful things. And, and so it's part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so then how do you bolster the oxytocin and increase the forgetting of the of the stuff that we want to get rid of? So yeah, that's a that's a really, really great question. And I'm asked that a lot now because and it's an appropriate question to me because I'm nothing if not a brain mechanic. If I say that, you know, Alzheimer's is caused by pathological forgetting. My research is to try to fix that. So I'm a, I'm a brain, I try to fix brains. So if I'm saying that too little fear forgetting is bad, and I say it in the context of the book, then it's a perfectly appropriate question to turn around to me and say, how can one do it? And you're a psychologist, I'll tell you something that was said perhaps slightly facetiously by couple therapists who have said, you know, Scott, you know, God bless you, find the drug for Alzheimer's. But if you find a, a, a drug that turns down fear memories, that f- allows us to forget our fear memories, my practice will thrive because marriage yeah. is nothing uh, if not being able to manage the good memories with, uh, uh, with, with forgetting. And so I get that. It's hard for me to make any strict recommendations. It's certainly not. Um, well, I can make some observations. Make them. That's okay. I think okay. we can say that it's, you know, you're extrapolating from the scientific knowledge that you do have. And so we're trying to translate it in ways right. that maybe are not quite so. Well, I could, I'll start, I'll start with, with what I'm comfortable with, which is not actually my ultimate recommendation from not only reading my book, but writing it, which taught me a lot. <laughs> um, and that is in the pharmacological space. We know that oxytocin does that, but that so far can be prescribed right, as a doctor. But you might know that MDMA is now being tested as a drug for the canonical disorder in where our, our forgetting is faulty, and that's PTSD. PTSD is, by definition, the inability to shake and forget fearful memories. Mm-hmm. MDMA, for many of your listeners, is called ecstasy. Right. And uh, they're being tested in clinical trials, doctors can't prescribe it. Ecstasy, by the way, was used by couple therapists before it was a banned substance. Interesting. I did see that on Mad Men. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But here's what's super interesting to me, at least, just to segue back on the benefits of forgetting. If people really want to, you know, don't quite get it or don't believe it or want to really experience the benefits of forgetting, you and I can't prescribe it, Eliza, but If anyone has tried MDMA, you know what? It's called ecstasy because the experience people feel, they're socially ecstatic in their increased connectivity and friendliness to friends, in their altruism, in their sense of love. There's the word again. That's the descriptions, the adjectives given when people actually pour over the adjectives described by people trying ecstasy. And that is not only because of the turning down of the fear memories, the fear forgetting, but it's a lot of that. And so that just proves how beneficial fear forgetting could be if most people think that it's an ecstatic experience. So that sticks, like you have the experience and then- It's temporary. It is only temporary. It is only temporary. But what what the idea what in, in therapy, as you know, is you can maybe use Prozac or drugs to maybe 
turn down the fear memory with maybe uh, things like ecstasy so that talk therapy can then maybe uh, render it more permanent. And that's actually the conclusion I arrived at in the chapter on PTSD as I was uh, in every chapter, I sort of have a guide. In that chapter, I had one of the expert, the expert at Columbia on PTSD. And we were talking about, well, why do two different people in the hypothetical both exposed to the same dreadful experience, right? Social uh, stressors. One goes on to be able to forget that, and one is unable to forget that and develops PTSD. What's the difference? And of course, those that's a thought experiment because there are many factors. But it turns out the most important factor is <laughs> the most important factor happy. is to right after the the traumatic psychologically traumatic event is mm-hmm. to live in a very coddling social environment where you're surrounded by love and laughter. There it is again. That is actually in the books on what is the greatest risk factor. For a lot of these poor combatants who are coming back from our international wars, the worst thing you can do is force them to live in social isolation. So, the, and, and that we now understand from the new science of forgetting in part why that is, because socializing turns out to secrete oxytocin and to turn down our fear memories and even potentially to prevent them from festering too long and, 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 and resulting in this permanent state. So I think it's quite interesting. It is. And it does also, and maybe I try too much to pull parallels, but with, you know, the biggest protective environmental protection that you have for, for kids in terms of toxic stress exposure is this loving support of, you know, at least one adult caregiver. And it's kind of similar. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, that that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, and, you know, one of the one of the worries and the, the 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 way this forward applies to a very timely issue, because uh, in our Alzheimer's Center we're also studying now the brain fog associated with COVID, which has many manifestations. Oh, I need to hear about that. But the real worry is that COVID clearly for many people is a, is a is a traumatic psychological event. But then we're saying live in social isolation and, and stay isolated right stay isolated so the real worry is the double whammy there and that i'm sure is going to emerge there's certainly going to be spikes of ptsd covid related ptsd because of that you guys know that busy moms will shave off anything that can give them more time to get things done during the day so this is why i love gemist i took their two-minute quiz and their algorithm matched me with the best shampoo and conditioner for my hair I matched with Shampoo 5, which is best for smoothing hair and detangling. And it also increases my volume by 42%. And really, after kids, we all could use a little volume boost. I also matched with Conditioner 12, which strengthens hair by 72%, reduces breakage by 42%, and increases shine by 40%. Plus, all of Gemma's products are color safe. Seriously, it's really good. It's a little chemist in my bathroom that whips up exactly what I need. Volume, no problem. I'm so happy with how my hair looks and feels with Gemist. And with Smart Subscribe, I can save money and guarantee that I never run out of shampoo and conditioner again. And here are my favorite things about Gemist other than I like how my hair feels and looks. It's a women-owned company. I like a subscription service, especially because it takes into account hair length and washing frequency. 
There are free returns. The ingredients are free of sulfates, parabens, dyes. It's never tested on animals and it's manufactured in the US. If you are ready to have the best hair ever, give Gemist a try. Right now, my listeners can give Gemist a try and get 20% off their shampoo and conditioner smart subscription. Smart subscribers already save 20% off on each order. So this is an awesome deal because it's doubling up on that. And with free two-day shipping, you can have it at the end of the weekend. Just visit gemist.com to get your personalized recommendation and enter RGH at checkout for 20% off your subscription and free two-day shipping. That's gemist, G-E-M-M-I-S-T.com and enter the code RGH. By now, we have all heard about blue light coming from our screens and it's just bad for our health and it's bad for our sleep. And a lot of us are worried about our kids getting a good night's sleep and being exposed to too much of these blue lights can have an impact on sleep and just eye health. So in my search for a simple solution, I found this product called iJust Blue Light Blocking Screen Protector, but you could just call it iJust because it's faster. And it actually blocks harmful blue light at the source. And that of course is going to impact sleep. Kids today of all ages from kindergarten through college and so are we, are getting this constant jolt of blue light from devices. And children's eyes are particularly at risk from blue light overexposure because they're not fully developed. So I just, blue light blocking technology is embedded directly in the screen and is super easy to apply. You won't even know it's there, but you will know that it's working. Now is the time to help your kids have healthier tech and block harmful blue light. I just is the solution to help us survive our tech-dependent lives. Visit iJust.com for more information. That's E-Y-E-J-U-S-T.com. And there's a special code for my listeners. So just type in HUMANS in all caps, H-U-M-A-N-S, and you'll get 20% off your first order. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. Why compare? because you could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. You could save $1,300 or more per year on life insurance by using Policy Genius to compare policies. The licensed experts at Policy Genius work for you and not the insurance companies, so you can trust them to help you with every step of the shopping and buying process. And eligible applicants can get covered in as little as a week thanks to an award-winning policy option that swaps the standard medical exam requirement with a simple phone call. This exclusive policy was recently rated number one by Forbes Advisor. So here's how it works. You get started really easily. You just head to policygenius.com and in minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. When you're ready to apply, the Policy Genius team will handle the paperwork and scheduling for free. Policy Genius doesn't add extra fees. Head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's so important to get it right. From the offices of Create and Cultivate, I'm Jacqueline Johnson, the host of Work Party a podcast for ambitious women looking to create and cultivate the career of their dreams. Work Party is paving the way for a new generation of women. 
women who are redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. Every Wednesday, we bring in leading female powerhouses for real talk and BS-free advice on building your business. You'll hear from female founders, CEOs, entrepreneurs, creatives, and so many other badass ladies. Are you ready to create and cultivate the career of your dreams? Then tune into Work Party, the podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. Can you distinguish between trauma and just a shitty experience and how, you know, forgetting, because I think you explained this well, there's a difference between forgetting and turning volume down and denial. And I would love to distinguish those things because I wouldn't want to suggest that we're supposed to erase all useless memories or bad memories. That's not what at all what this is about. So can you kind of go through yeah, so, that? Okay, for the first thing, let me emphasize if it's not clear. I am not saying that that memory is bad. I'm not saying that only forgetting is good. Uh, the, the, the real punchline <laughs> of the book is that you need both to yeah. work in unison. And it's only when that balance between forgetting and memory is thrown off kilter do you start seeing negative consequences. Everyone understands that if memory goes down too much, that's bad. But what's really interesting, if forgetting goes down and you're off kilter, that also is bad. Mm -hmm. In terms of trauma, so PTSD is a medical condition. It's a injured brain. It's a disordered personality. It's a disease. But it turns out, and then there's a second chapter that gets to this, it turns out that um, the same mechanisms that are more clearly explained in the extreme situations of true trauma, true disorder, also play out in our normal personalities. So there is, and you're, you know this better than I because you're a psychologist, but there's a somewhat simplified distinction between pro-social personalities and antisocial personalities. People know what antisocial is. Pro-social in many ways is the opposite, is someone who's altruistic, compassionate, loving, not the kind of macho thugs that we see in um, in movies or in the political spectrum, and so you know, I think I think everyone says antisocial is bad, pro-social is good, but do we really? You know, I, it's interesting. Me myself, I mean, I wonder: am I in my darkest moment? Am I too rageful and fearful? in certain situations. And in the book, I describe the, you know, the person who complains about living a miserably lonely life and asking the brain mechanic, me, how can that be fixed? Because most people want to be to a certain degree pro-social. Uh, and so the same mechanisms apply that the best way to do that is to turn down your fear memories. Now, again, that's the solution at the uh, mechanistic level, how do you actually fix that in real life is a little bit more complicated, particularly when we're not dealing with true disorders. But I think I'd like to believe that if people understand that better, at least the mechanics of it all, they might be able to learn how to turn down their fear and rage. And I guess in the balance is you, you don't want to turn it down so much that you can't have the appropriate stress responses when there actually is danger. You just want to turn it down for, so that we're not living in, in a primitive brain. Right. Right. And that's, that's exactly the point. I mean, um, 
you don't want scars, brain scars, emotion scars. We use that term colloquially, but it's actually not just colloquial. It's factually true. You can actually see the equivalent of a brain scar when someone, when people investigate antisocial personalities. Uh, there's the equivalent of the brain scar. The, the parts of their brain that store the fear memories are just enlarged and engorged. Um, and that happens. Part of that, of course, is genetics, our, our makeup. But a part of that is how we were reared. And actually, that's now that I think about it, probably relevant to many of your listeners. That's why uh, providing a child with a coddling environment is important, not just because we like to spoil our children, but because we don't want them to be in a permanent state of fear and rage. So parents ask this question a lot. There's a situation and then did I just scar my child for life? Right. And then sometimes kids, especially younger children, want to talk about something that felt not even traumatic, but just like was different. It was a novel experience for the day. And whether they fell and hurt their knee or somebody was mean to them or something exciting happened, Sometimes the stuff that engages fear is stuff that kids want to replay over and over. Tell me that story again. Tell me that story again. And I'm just wondering in terms of memory, is there a point at which you're distancing yourself by repeating it, but you're now not emotionally connected to it? Is that the... That's absolutely right. But to use, to, to translate exactly that in the way I use exactly that kind of idea in the book. And I actually, in that case, use my own personal experience because uh, th- this PTSD expert said, you know, we, the idea was maybe he can provide me with a patient and we can track him and shadow him. And that would be a, a narrative in the book. And he said, but he, he knew that I grew up in Israel. He knew that I served in this unit and that I participated in this battle with a lot of loss of friends. He says, well, why don't you talk about yourself? And I said, you're kidding, right? This is not about me. He says, no, no, I'm not kidding. So I had to do some deep soul searching because I never talk about those experiences. Had to get permission from my military friends. And I did it. And, and it was just interesting on this very point to use a very personal experience, which typifies exactly what you're describing. So we participated in this in this horrible battle. We lost a lot of friends. It was bloody and gory. We all go back to our unit in northern Israel, and many of us don't develop PTSD, even though it was clearly a scar. It was horrible. There's no, no questions about it. And one of the reasons is because we were forced to live in this little unit as we were waiting for our next, next assignment, and because of who we were, we were all engaged in almost sort of sophomoric silliness and laughter. And we would replay a lot of the things that happened. But now, as typical for 19-year-olds, we use macabre humor. And, right. and, 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 and in the book, as we were going to our friends' uh, funerals, it was absolutely twisted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me admit that. But to the point that you're making, and this is the, what I say, I think, in the book, is that what the PTSD expert said, he was really interested in that. He says, well, that's so interesting. That's very different than if you all had participated in that battle and then were scattered to live at home alone or in a hospital unit. You were all forced to be your socially engaged kind of frat boys in a way in this mm-hmm. unit in northern Israel. And you were basically washing out the bloody use of the memory, of the emotional memory by socializing and with laughter. And I think that's part and parcel of what you're saying. When people talk about things, it doesn't have to be with silly sophomoric humor. It, it doesn't be. have to be with humor, but it can be. But just talking through things, what you're basically doing there in terms of the mechanisms of memory is that memories have 
factual information and they have emotional information, right? So close your eyes and think of a childhood bully. You don't have to go that far. We all know that some people we immediately associate with favorable feelings and some we have negative feelings. That's an example of how our brain combines information, the face, the name, with emotions. Now, what you're describing and what happened to us, we didn't lose the factual information. We still, every year, engage in a memorial of it. They're not letting us forget even if we wanted to. But what happened in those few months after this battle is that we disassociated or at least defanged the emotional part. And so the factual part was there. And the emotional part was forgotten to a certain extent, not completely. And I'd like to uh, ask you, because you're the expert, I would imagine as a child talks through uh, a traumatic event in kindergarten or, or, or school, when they come home and talk through it, I would imagine that a similar forgetting is happening, not of the content, but of the emotional valence. I think that makes sense. Exactly. And, and I think that that's, that's very scary for parents because they're afraid, well, I don't want to remind them if they haven't brought it up. Mm. That happens a lot because we think if we don't talk about something, memory goes away and therefore you're not going to have those difficult feelings. But actually, when we talk about things, what you just described is what happens, that we can separate. And I think that how you just said it, which I will totally mess up, um, but separating factual from emotional is a really clear way of saying something that explains why we don't want to just like brush things under the rug. Absolutely. And you know, one of the, one of the reasons I'm enjoying this is because you're asking me to opine on things I never really thought about, but it does work in terms of child rearing, right? That you, you, what you do well in any walk of life, you don't want to dismiss a terrible event and leave it to fester. You want to try to disentangle it. Mm-hmm. I do. I you know sometimes people say it's good to forget the factual information, and that might be true for certain extreme examples. But we certainly don't want to forget the factual information. I don't want to forget my friends who died or the horrible experience because it informed my life. But I am lucky that my brain was able to forget enough of the emotional part that it didn't scar me with PTSD. And I would imagine that's true also in certain aspects of child rearing. For sure, and I. I... I am sorry that you went through that. I am thrilled that you were able to explain it in the book because I think it helps so many people. And maybe it did in turn help you a little bit to even, I don't know. <laughs> you're right. No, you're absolutely right. By, by, by forcing, so that's very interesting. That's a closed loop. By forcing myself to engage it uh, and to talk to my friends about it, it definitely helped uh, heal any lingering scars that are still there. Although as I was writing it, my wife practically asked me to sleep in a different bed because I was having these horrible dreams. Not oh, no. but, it, but it actually was probably uh, clarifying and helpful at, at the end. And in fact, at the end of that chapter, I do talk about that a little bit, about how two of my close friends who happened, well, one lives in Israel, one in New York, not far from me. We all actually engaged in something that happened and it helped us release some of the emotional memory. Releasing Fear memories is just another colloquial term for forgetting. We use a lot of terms, you know, we say, just let go, that's forgetting. Uh, You know, just release it, that's forgetting. I never really thought about that, but that is essentially when, when, you know, when anybody just tells you to let something go, it's just about, it's asking you to to let go of the emotional memory that's 
turning you. Exactly. Exactly. You know, to forgive and forget. That's part of it. Amnesty. When we forgive another country, amnesty comes from the Latin forgetting, amnesia. So we need to forget, particularly fear memories, not completely, not to become zombies on the memory, but to prevent those memories from burning too hard that they scar our brains for life. In, in this world of everything should be positive and put, you know, look, look at the rainbow, not the saber tooth tiger or whatever happens when we get more positive. It is not smart necessarily to always look at the bright side of things only. When you say forgetting, I think that's just such an important distinction. You are talking about forgetting, but not the way we might hear. Right. It's, it's, it's not canceling out the event. It's Information not, is not gone. The information is not gone, and God forbid I would never say that. And, you know, we, um, we should remember, whether it's personal events, traumatic events, we should remember our personal communal events. Um, never forget 9-11. I think that's true. Uh, I was in New York. Yeah, maybe you were as well. We shouldn't forget it. Certainly, certainly. But we should also not have PTSD off of that event, because that's because not like every. Right. Otherwise, how do you function? And so for the the adaptive part of forgetting is a path toward, it seems like a healing. It's a well-being. It's a healing. And that's the point. It's the balance. And I even emotional forgetting. I never want to forget the horrors of 9-11 and all the heroes who participated in, in that horrible event. But me personally and New Yorkers as a community and us as a nation, we have to not let it burn too hot. Right. Again, another of the many ways we describe forgetting. So this is such a hard question to ask you to answer because it's uh, so you can ignore it if it's not answerable. But if you could design in some way the way we interact with younger brains in our care for them as they're growing to learn the adaptive forgetting. Sorry, I keep saying adaptive instead of normal. I I say normal, but... I'm going to go with what you say. (laughs) The normal forgetting. Is there a way you can nurture a brain better? There are two kinds of... I mean, in some ways, the many chapters in the book could be organized about two kinds of forgetting, both normal. One for emotional memories. We just talked about that. And at some level, I think that's intuitive. People know that you need to forgive to forget mm-hmm. or forget to forgive. The other chapters deal with something that's a little less intuitive on, on why we need to forget factual information. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about that. To be smarter and to be able to see generalizations. But before I go into that, let me just tell you the kind of prescriptions. Uh, and I gather this would be true uh, for a developing person, although again, I'm not a pediatrician, the best way to really prevent, to accelerate healthy emotional forgetting are the things we've been talking about, you know, socialization, airing it out, letting it, don't let it fester. These are all things I think we all intuitively do, live a very communal social life, try not to be isolated if possible. For the cognitive memory of forgetting, the, the one thing that turns out to be the easiest recommendation is a good night's sleep. It turns oh, out- so glad we, you said that. We sleep in order to forget. That's another example of the surprising observations of the new science of forgetting. 
Can you talk more about that? Because I was surprised too, because I did, I, of course, I sleep is such a crucial part of development, yeah. uh, but I always think of it as to organize your brain, to remember the things that you're supposed to remember and get rid of the things that you don't need. But I never thought of it in terms of forgetting. Well, first of all, you say to get rid of the things you don't need again. Think about that for a second. That has to engage. But but more to the point, and you're absolutely right, there has actually been a debate and a a competition in the field of why (laughs) we we sleep vis-a-vis memory and forgetting. Those who say it's better for memory, those who say it's better for forgetting. But the story really begins with um, Francis Crick from Crick and Watson fame. These are the two guys who solved the genetic code, right? Yeah. And uh, arguably the most important biological finding ever. And once Crick solved that, he said, well, that was easy. Now let me turn to harder problems. What, what is consciousness and why do we sleep? <laughs> um, being a little facetious, but that's what he turned his attention to in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. In the 1980s, he figured it out. He had a very provocative paper whose title was basically, We Sleep in Order to Smart Forget. Smart Forgetting. And it was a provocative idea. If I would have written it, no one would have paid attention, but he wrote it, so people paid attention, and they should have. And his students, he he inspired a whole uh, group of students, were interested in following up on this question, but it was only in the last 10 years that they had the right tools to really test this because it's a complicated question. And it turns out that he was right. The reason why we sleep, there are a lot of reasons, but when it comes to memory and forgetting, most of what sleeping does is it clears the slate, forgetting. And if you think about it, as we're talking here today, as you live your eight hours of waking life, maybe 12 hours of waking life, your brain is very, very sticky. It likes to store stuff. Again, that's the default mode. And most of that is irrelevant. And most of that is just static and noise. And so on balance, what forget it, what sleep does is it clears that slate. Now, it does also improve memory. But there I use the metaphor of imagine, you know, memories being this sort of lawn, this field of grass, right? And that's some ways in which we think about memory because memory is stored in many and millions of neurons. And so each neuron grows or the spines grow and that's basically memory. And what sleeping does is it mows that down (laughs) in a very manicured way. But what it also does is it allows the, the, the memories that somehow our brain thinks are important, it preserves it. So almost topiary-like, it makes the important memories more obvious, uh-huh. but all the stuff that's not is uh, effectively manicured down. And so is sleep the kind of thing that where there, if there's a deficit, you can catch up for your memory and your forgetting? That's a good, that's a good question. First, I, again, if, we're talk, if it's nice in a book like this to keep it from being sort of abstract and academic, Give me examples of where my forgetting is beneficial. We talked about the benefits, uh, if anyone has experienced some illicit drugs, but also that first alcoholic drink. And many people have tried that. Not many drinks. That first sip. If you feel a certain relaxation and pro-social behavior, that's because the area that stores memory has been turned down. You're, you're, You're engaged in emotional forgetting. When it comes to cognitive forgetting, ask someone to stay awake for two or three days and tell them how they feel. 
I've been forced to do this in this unit. I served in for three days and I was frankly psychotic. Most people are actually when, they, when that's done. Yeah. People say they're up for many days. Most people catch, you know, they don't. But if you actually keep someone awake for too long, first of all, they ultimately will die. But before that, they don't have memory failure. What they have is a brain with too many memories. And that's why you have the staticiness. You can't concentrate. You can't formulate. There's, too much input. There's just too much in your brain. And your brain is just wiggly with, um, with, with unnecessary information. That's static. That's too much memory. So that's a nice way to explain, you know, it's, it's sort of like I can maybe go through the, the biology of why we need to eat to produce energy. To, but the best way to know why we need to eat is to starve. <laughs> if you really want to know why you need to forget, stay awake. You'll figure it out very quickly. Now, if you have a teenager who's staying up all night or you're, you know, many of us studied this way in school or in graduate school, just like you just pulled all nighters. Is that like you're never remembering that stuff after you remember it? But is it a quick way to keep the information? It it might be for if you're cramming for the exam tomorrow, but it's not going to be. No retention. And you might know, uh, because you have a lot of uh, doctors in your family, that in medical school, when I went to medical school, it was like the macho, you're all... Yeah, don't sleep. Right. Two nights in the ICU. And that's been done away with, not just because the government agencies have decided to coddle young trainees, Mm -hmm. but because it doesn't work. It's much better to force people to take a few nights. It doesn't have to be eight hours but at least a few hours sleep is enough to start clearing the slate. So to teenagers out there, you know, unless they're choosing to party all night, uh, if they really want to do better uh, on their performance, try to get some sleep. If they just want to cram, get their A's and then don't care, then that might work. But if they really want to remember, that's not the, that's not the, that's not the kids of of your listeners. I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they, they want to really learn. If you really want to learn properly and store information properly, uh, get good night's sleep. Yep. doesn't have to be eight hours, but get a few hours sleep, at least four to six hours. When you think about the adolescent brain, and I, if this is off, please just correct yep. me midway and I'll just stop. But if our goal of an integrated brain is to have the capacity for just thinking, and we have an adolescent who has more hyper-rational thinking right. and like there's a 90% chance that if I get in this car drunk driving, that everybody's going to be fine. And that seems that's like good enough. And you want them to sort of have more gist thinking so that they can make bigger picture decisions. First of all, I don't even know if that's accurate, but second of all, if it is, or if there's a way you can explain gist thinking, are there exercises that you can do to grow your gist thinking skills? That's really interesting. I'll take the first question first. (laughs) (laughs) Easier for me to, and it's more what I talk about in the book, because we were talking earlier about how there are different examples of where forgetting needs to balance memory, emotional, but also cognitive. Just thinking is a perfect example of where we need our forgetting to think smartly. And let me explain a little bit about that. So basically, we all extract, it's called generalization in psychology mm-hmm. in your field. It's basically seeing the whole from the parts or seeing the forest from the trees, right? We all mm-hmm. intuitively know what that means. But we know great examples in our day-to-day lives in where our brain is always extracting gists 
And it's so innate that we don't even notice it. So if you look at your friend's child's spouse in the morning and in the evening, your brain is seeing something very different. That is just factually true. Different lighting, facial hair, makeup, hats, right? And so yet our brain doesn't say, wait, different items, it's the same face. That is just thinking. That is your brain saying, I know that there's differences here, but I'm not going to perseverate on the details and get too stuck on them because if I do, I'll never be able to organize the life, our lives. And so what we know about the new science of forgetting is that the way our brain extracts these jests, sees the forest from the trees, is by engaging our forgetting mechanisms. Because if it wouldn't, we would have just too much memory back in the areas of the brain that say, wait a minute, a person's wearing a hat. She it's a different detail. The difference, and so the brain knows not to perseverate on that detail. Another example of the brain engaging our forgetting mechanisms. And wow. something we're probably not going to have time to talk about is autism. And I, I have a feeling a lot of your listeners are engaged in that. The first thing I'll say, there is a chapter on autism. The second thing I'll say is that I'm very respectful of the debate about whether autism is one or many disorders or even a disorder at all. It could be biodiversity. But the reason why autism is interesting to illustrate this, and I've had many chats with parents who have autism, and they've generally, since the book has been published, have been thanking me for this. So I hope I don't offend anyone. But basically what we now know, I talked about the basic molecular mechanisms of forgetting. It turns out that some of those mechanisms are known to not work as well in some people with autism. And in fact, Leo Kanner, who's the father of child psychiatry, who described autism in a second classic paper in 1953, its title is The Inability in an Autistic Child to See the Whole from the Parts. So in some ways, many people I talk to who have family members with autism, people who have autism, and the doctor who was my lead guide in this, say that that is often what typifies some aspect of autism, is that things, because they can't generalize, everything is novel. Every, and novelty is sometimes fun, but it could be really anxiety-provoking. And so when you and I walk into a room or a classroom, I quickly, my mind quickly says, I know that person, I know the teacher, I know this room, even though the chairs were changed. Mm-hmm. A kid with autism walks into a room and a little change seems novel, and novelty, if it happens too much, could, could, be, could overload and, and cause anxiety. So I thought that was a very interesting observation in talking to experts and families and people with autism. It really is everything that you talked about. And this is like a whole other conversation. And I know you have to go, but, and it's interesting that you do Alzheimer's because so much of it goes to mental health in general from the beginning. And so anxiety and autism, and um, I imagine so much in attention and it's just yeah, no, you're 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 absolutely right. And maybe we can end with something even loftier. So I am one of these rare neurologists who's also appointed in psychiatry. Uh, and that's because so you know that neurologists and psychiatrists, you might know, even though we work on the same body real estate, we don't always get along. And it's yeah. and it's because we work on the same real estate <laughs> that we compete. And that's of course idiotic. And my work on Alzheimer's has actually led me to schizophrenia and I'm appointed. I run the the schizophrenia 
uh, research program in the Department of Psychiatry. And the really interesting thing about mental health, you know, if one were to rewrite the textbooks, here's a really interesting idea, maybe idea for another book written by someone else, <laughs> is that if we talk about too much memories, too, in, in, the inability to forget as having a brain that burns too hot with mm -hmm. too much information, it turns out that many psychiatric illnesses are a brain on fire disorder. Yeah. By which I mean schizophrenia. Your brain is looping on uh, hallucinations, potentially, anxieties, maybe things like autism, certainly OCD. I mean, that is just a brain that's on fire with too many uh, recurring memories or obsessions. And that might be distinct from what we typically now think as neurological conditions like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, where the brain is on ice. So you have a brain on fire with too much stuff, yeah. maybe getting there is primarily faulty, and a brain that's on ice with too little memory. And that right. seems to work 